Good morning. If you're in the back and you don't have a study guide, if you'll throw up a quick hand. And some folks in the front will get some extras to you in the back. I want to welcome everybody here this morning. Throw up a quick hand if you can hear me in the back of the room. We're good. All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. And what we're in the midst of, what you have walked into this morning at Grace Community Church, is we are studying through the letter of Colossians together. And so we're right in the middle of Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn there. And before we dive in this morning, we're going to pray together. So let's do that now. Father, we come to you today, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And we tell you, Lord, we tell you in sincerity, God, that we love you, Lord. It is the, it is the song of our heart to sing your praise and to express affection to you. You are our God. You are our Lord. You are our treasure. You are the one that we desire. And today, Lord, we desire to hear from you, God. We desire to be addressed by you personally in this room. So, Lord, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit today to sing to you, God, to hear your word proclaimed. Help us, Holy Spirit. Father, many times and in many ways, Lord, you spoke to your people in past time by prophets. But you tell us in these last days, Lord, that you speak in the Son and we desire to give attention to Jesus this morning. God, address us about glorious things about your Son. And give us ears to hear them, Lord. Give us ears to hear things about Christ. Give us hearts to, to appreciate them, Lord. To see the glory of Jesus. God, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters, God, that you would revive us, Lord. As we give attention to your word, God, that you would encourage us. In Christ Jesus this morning. This is our prayer. In Jesus name. Amen. Alright grab your Bibles. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And our text this morning. Is going to be verse 12. Through verse 14. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12. Through verse 14. We're going to read this together, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to get your eyes on these words, because in a very literal sense, this is God's word to this local church this morning. This is the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour. These are words straight from the Holy Spirit of God, so let's read them together. These are the words of God, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is God's word to us this morning. So before we get to this passage today, we're parachuting, kind of dropping right in the middle of a paragraph of scripture in verse 12, and I want to take a second to talk about why we're doing that. I want to remind us, or even bring you up to speed, if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks. So what is going on in Colossians chapter 1? Parachuting into the middle of this prayer. And Ryan covered the, uh, the majority of this prayer last week as he taught. And what we see in this prayer is we see Paul expressing his desire for a local church... To walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. To walk in such a way that pleases Jesus Christ. And you see that in verse 10. Okay? And then we get four participles in this paragraph that explain what that kind of life would look like. What would it look like if someone walked on this planet in a way that was worthy of God. Someone walking around in this world in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus. It would look like these four things. They would bear fruit. They would increase. They would be strengthened. And then this last one that we're going to give attention to today is that they would give thanks to God the Father for conversion. And so that's the structure of this prayer. That is what it looks like to have a life in this world that pleases God. Now, the, the giving thanks is the last of those four things, the last of those four descriptions. And... It's the emphasis of the passage. More 
ink is spilt on that one than any of the other three. And so in a lot of ways, this is his emphasis. He wants to draw attention to this, that if we want to live as Christians in this world in a way that's worthy of God, in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be people, disciples of Jesus, that give thanks to the Father for our conversion. This is why I've titled... Uh, the message today on your study guide, Celebrating Conversion. I want you to see how central this is to the Christian life. How central, how foundational this is to the Christian life. And so Ryan did this last week. Ryan sketched out that prayer as, as a description of Christian holiness. This is what it looks like to live a holy life in this world. And, and, the, and we're going to put the tip of the spear today... Is that holiness looks like giving thanks to the Father for your conversion. And I want to stop right there, pause, and zone out for just a minute. I want to ask you a few questions, okay? We see that, it's there, we see the structure of it, see how important it is, see what it means, okay? And I want to ask you this question. When you think about Christian maturity and Christian holiness, do you tend to think about it in categories like that? Thankfulness to God the Father for conversion. Is that how you tend to think about Christian maturity and Christ-likeness? I want to I just dive into that question even more. You know, sometimes that we say things about other people uh, in a good way. That we say, this brother or this sister is solid. That, 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 that brother, that's a solid man of God. When we say things like that, that slang means... That we think that's a holy man. That man is godly. Or this is a holy woman. She is a godly woman. Okay. And when we say things like that. We're coming to those evaluations about other people. Not in a bad way. We want to know where they stand with God. We want to know how their walk is. So that we can help them grow. And so we come to these evaluations. And we use biblical categories to get there. We don't just say things like that in a vacuum. We see certain things in their life and we say things either to them or to ourselves like that is a godly brother. That is, that is a solid sister in the Lord Jesus. And so my concern in driving in this question is not so much do we say things like that with unbiblical categories in mind. But my concern is that we say things like that with these categories out of balance. And so you think about this. How does this play out in your life when you say, man, that brother is solid. That sister is solid. When you say things like that, do you find yourself always gravitating towards they're solid because of spiritual activity? You see some spiritual activity in this person's life. Okay, We're going to be careful here, but I want to drive this in, drive this wedge in. Is this how you think about Christian maturity? Okay, Do you find yourself... Thinking only in terms of spiritual activity. Man, that brother preaches the gospel. Man, that sister makes disciples. When this church is at this location preaching the gospel, she's there. She is involved in spiritual activity. She's working it to the bone for the Lord Jesus. She is solid. See what I'm saying? Or another, another way that we can come to evaluations like that is leaning too heavily on spiritual disciplines. Okay, we're going to be careful here. That brother is solid because that brother memorizes tons of scripture. That brother is solid because he is faithful in communion with God in prayer with the Lord Jesus. Okay, now I will say this. These are biblical categories that in no way do I want to tear those down. Okay, all I want to do is interject this one right beside it. Do you say that brother and sister is solid because they are happy in the gospel? Every time I see them, they are satisfied in Jesus Christ. Do you think about it like that? Do you think about that being a mark of Christian holiness and Christian maturity? And, and let's just drive the spirit even more of, of not you evaluating other people, but when you evaluate yourself. When you think about how you're doing in Christ, when you think about your walk in Christ Jesus and you put your finger, so to speak, on, on, on the pulse and you begin to take vital signs of how does it go with your own soul? 
Do you find yourself gravitating only to those categories of the activities that I'm doing or the spiritual disciplines that I'm, I'm involved in? And what we see in this passage is that a mark, a vital sign of holiness and Christian maturity that pleases Jesus Christ is how thankful you are for what God has done in your life in Christ, in conversion. It is a mark of Christian holiness. So I want you to see how foundational this is, how important this is. Okay? So as we study through Colossians, we're gonna learn, uh, we're gonna learn a lot of things about, you could call it the mechanics of the Christian life, how this Christian life works, okay? And you're going to get a lot of examples as we come through Colossians of, how, of what we're not supposed to be doing. And then you're going to get even more examples coming through Colossians of what we are supposed to be doing. Of how we're supposed to be going about the Christian life. And more than anything else, you're going to stumble across these reminders in Colossians of what I'm calling another expression of the gospel for the believer. The centrality of Jesus Christ. In moving forward in the Christian life. I think that's scattered all through this letter. You're going to hear me and Ryan mention it many more times. But today I believe that we have another example of that. He is looking at Christians. This is who's in view in this letter. And he is sketching out that they are thankful for what God has done in their life. In conversion. Gospel for the believer. So I want, us to, I want us to remember what he's up against. What's happening in this local church that he's fighting against, that he's writing this letter and sketching these things out, is you could say at, at the very highest place, he is battling against what you could call Christless Christianity. Okay, That there's a shell of Christianity that's moving forward and, and some regulations and some ethics and some teachings but Jesus Christ himself is being de-emphasized in this local church. Or at least that's the danger that he's, that he's writing to guard against. So in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, what he's doing in every chapter of this letter is, is might sound weird, but he's putting Christ back into Christianity. Where they are de-emphasizing the Lord Jesus, he is emphasizing the Lord Jesus and exalting Jesus to a place of supremacy, unrivaled authority in their life. So that's why you get these little nuggets coming all through Colossians of calling a believer's attention back to Jesus. And I'm calling that the gospel for the believer. This is how important it is for you. Okay, We, we spent a lot of time on that a couple of weeks ago. But what we have here is a clear connection to your affections towards God. As it relates to your conversion and the pleasure of Jesus Christ in your life. You have those two things and our passage today draws a direct line between those two things. So we could say it backwards like this. We could say it is impossible for you brothers and sisters. And I know that you love Jesus and you want to please Jesus. Our passage today tells us it is impossible for us to live a life that pleases Jesus Christ. Apart from happiness in his gospel and a life poured out in thankfulness to our God for what he's done for us in Jesus. We are to give thanks to God the Father who qualifies us, qualifies us. We're, we're going to give a lot of attention today to a past work that's been done on our behalf. So I want you to grab this paradox. We're bumping into it again. That what's being sketched out here is moving forward in the Christian life. Not staying in the same place. Growing in holiness. Bearing fruit. Increasing. More Christ-likeness. We want to see that at this local church. We want to see that as individual disciples of Jesus. We want to move forward. Amen? And what we see in this passage is that one of the ways that the kingdom of God works is that as we move forward in the Christian life... There is a constant gaze backwards to what God has done for us in Jesus. We never take our eyes off of the finished work of Christ. Now in some other ways, at other places in the New Testament, there's a gaze forward. But our text is, is, is driving in this principle that the only way forward is the gaze backward to what Jesus Christ has done in 
your life. Holiness is impossible without this. It is impossible for you to be a holy man or a holy woman if you are not happy in Jesus. That's what our, what our passage means. Okay? It is impossible for you to grow in sanctification if you are not satisfied in the Savior, satisfied in Jesus. This is how foundational this is. Okay? So I'm going to read a verse to you to drive this in even more of how important our affections for God are, like joy and thanksgiving and praise. We're tempted to think about these things about like icing on the cake, that they're like seasoned into a meal, but they're foundational. Okay? They're not icing on the cake of the Christian life. They're at the very foundation of what it means to please God. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I want to read to you verse 47. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Says this, because you did not serve the Lord, your God, with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Now that's a tremendous warning to us. How would you like to be told that? You will serve your enemies. And that's bad enough. That's bad enough that we would serve our enemies, but then to turn the corner of that. And the reason why that would be true in this generation in their life is because they refuse to serve God with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of what God did in their life. That's the warning for us. Don't do that. Do this. Colossians chapter 1. We move forward by looking backwards. And we give thanks to God the Father for our conversion. For our conversion. So what we're going to do today is we're not going to talk about be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. That's not the way that this works. Like, you can try that when you leave. You can, if you're weak in this area, or you feel like you're in some kind of valley in this area, you go out and you try this in the parking lot. Dustin, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, and nothing happens, okay? That's the way that these affections work. You just can't produce them at any moment. In a lot of ways, they're reflexes to us seeing something rightly. And so therefore, if we want to grow in our joy in God, in our celebration of what God has done in our life, we don't focus on being thankful. We give attention to the gospel. And that's exactly what this passage does. He doesn't tell them, be thankful. He gives them specific works to draw their minds back to what God has done for them. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to give attention to these works that are spelled out in this passage. They are works that God has accomplished for every single Christian. And the mindset that we're after as we give attention to these works is we want to be happy in the gospel. We want to be personally reminded that these words that we're reading this morning, they're not locked into history. We really experience these same things. And we want to be asking God the Holy Spirit to use His word this morning to bring joy in our hearts. Thankfulness to God for what He has done for us in the gospel. So, first call this morning is a call to remember in verse 12. It says this, a call to remember that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Share in the inheritance of of the saints in the light. So here's what we have. We have reminders from God's word of what has happened to us. And I just want to say this as simply as I can. Brothers and sisters in this room. Every single one of you that are in Christ Jesus. The word of God pronounces you with these words from the Holy Spirit. Qualified. Qualified. Literally made fit. For the same inheritance. As the Old Testament saints. You, David doesn't get something better than you. Moses doesn't get something better than you. Abraham doesn't get something better than you. You have been qualified for that, to receive that same inheritance that God's prophets of old will receive. The phrase in the light is a reminder for us in this passage that the inheritance that we are qualified for and that we will receive is not an earthly material thing. It's in the light. That's a reference to eternity. 
We have been qualified to receive an, an, an eternal inheritance from God the Father. So we're going to camp out on this. We're going, to, we're going to give attention to what God is pronouncing to us as believers this morning as a local church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 is probably the most specific place in Scripture that describes the believer's inheritance in heaven. And I want you to listen to some of the adjectives that, that, that describe our inheritance that we will be given because of Christ. Listen to these. Our inheritance is, is said to be imperishable. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You have an imperishable inheritance. And that means that in a million years... It can't grow old. It can't fade away. There's nothing about it that will rot. It is undefiled. That means that what happened in God's creation when Satan came in and tempted Adam and Eve and sin entered into this world, that will never happen again. In the new heavens and the new earth, it is undefiled. It will never happen again. There will never be anything that can rob you of this inheritance. And what about that phrase unfading? You have an unfading inheritance. And what I believe that means is that the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus, that it never loses its power to satisfy us. It never diminishes in its ability to bring us joy and satisfaction. And so sometimes we have really long, wrong ideas about, you mean we're just going to do that for a million years and a million years and a million years? And what things like this tell us is that in 10 million years, in eternity with Christ, we will be just as satisfied, if not more, than at the very beginning. Why? Because our inheritance in Christ Jesus is unfading. And then listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that that inheritance is kept, reserved in heaven for every Christian. It's being kept by God. Nothing can take these things from you. This is the inheritance that you have been qualified for in Jesus Christ. Christ, in Christ. Now, what is it? There are many things that could fall under the umbrella of our inheritance. And we could say it's this and this and this. And one of those things that we are going to inherit is land. I don't know if you ever thought about this. We will inherit land in eternity. And you say, well, what do you mean? And you know this. If you spend any time in the Old Testament, you know that there's a lot of language in the Old Testament about something called the promised land, the land of Canaan that God promised to Abraham and all of Abraham's offspring. And if you've ever read those words, you know that many, many times he promises that land of Canaan to the people of God, listen close, as an everlasting possession. That sounds eternal, right? And then we read the New Testament and we see nothing in there about this land of Canaan. Almost nothing is said. And so how are we to understand these things? One option is that God changed his mind and we don't and we don't get things like that anymore. But I believe that that in the new and better covenant that we are a part of, that we have been promised in Christ Jesus, that promise of the land of Canaan has been extended out to the entire earth. Do you know that? That believers, we will inherit the earth. We will inherit the earth. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. They can have the land of Canaan. We're getting a renewed creation. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 21. It says this, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption... And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Same thing that happened to you. Old you died. New you is, is, is resurrected. The same thing is going to happen to the entire universe. And we inherit it as a promise of salvation from our God. Check this out. In, in Habakkuk chapter 2. What is this new creation and this new earth going to be like? Look at verse 14. I love this phrase. I love it. I can't even, even begin to jam the glory of this in my little finite peanut brain. Listen to what it says. It says, The earth 
Listen close. Let's say that two or three times. The earth, the earth, the earth. Okay? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And I want you to think about that. Think about really being in a planet where that is true. That is not hyperbole. That is not some weird exaggeration to where you live in a realm and in a world where the knowledge of the glory of God swallows the earth like water covers the sea. This is our inheritance, every single Christian, every single one of us. But you know, the Bible, when it talks about our inheritance more than anything else, where it camps out at the very top, at the very ultimate place, is we inherit God himself. And you think about that. What good is land? What good are spiritual blessings if we are in eternity forever and we don't have Jesus Christ? Two verses later in Colossians, we're going to be told that we were made for Him. We exist for Him. We exist to glorify Him. To be satisfied in Jesus. Can you imagine that? How, is that? how would that be good news to be in eternity in a new earth and you don't even have the one for whom you were made? We were made for Christ. And so sketch that picture in more vivid terms that we, our inheritance is eternity in a new heavens, new earth. We're, we're with Jesus in a new creation and we're beholding His face. We are seeing our Lord. He is our inheritance. And you see shadows of this in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Listen to these words. Verse 9. Levi was told in Deuteronomy 10.9, he was told that he would have no portion or inheritance with his brothers. We pause and we you know, throw just a real short little sad moment for Levi. Poor Levi. All his brothers get something and he gets nothing. And you know, what parent in the room think, you know, like you just give five of your kids, you know, one thing and you say, not you. You don't get portion or inheritance with your brothers. And we have this little bitty moment. Say, poor, poor Levi, poor Levi. And then that same verse says this. So you don't get the portion or inheritance with your brothers. Deuteronomy 10 verse 9. And it says, because the Lord is your inheritance. And so right in the middle of that pity party, we, we, we shift the mindset. And he, he's richer than all of his brothers. They got a little track of land and he, he inherited the Lord God. And this is a shadow of our inheritance. Our inheritance is God. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That's, that's what we're excited about. That's what Christians are excited about is eternity. Not football and silly things that sometimes you hear people talk about. We want to be with Jesus. The, the Bible ends with that phrase, come Lord Jesus. We want to see our Lord. He is our inheritance. He is our exceedingly great reward. In heaven's not even good news if Christ is not there. Our inheritance is God. And we have been qualified to receive this inheritance as a prize. And that is true for every single Christian, from the moment of conversion, you don't have any more inheritance than you did at the very beginning of, of repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been qualified to receive this glorious inheritance. But let's back up for a second. And we're never going to, we can know that factually. That that's there. We can see those things in God's word. Those things are never going to arrest our attention. And hit us with the weight that they should. Unless we see ourselves rightly. In light of being qualified. And here's what I mean by that. We need to press in. To who just got qualified to receive that inheritance. Because there's a massive contrast there. Of who we were. And who, he, who we have become. By nature. And by grace. And here's what I mean by that. We did not come into this world. Headed to an eternity with Christ. 
That's not who we were by nature. We didn't come into this world qualified to receive that inheritance. In fact, it was the exact opposite. And I want you to think about it like this. Okay? This is the bad news of the Bible. And, and it's not like we were merely unqualified for the inheritance. And here's what I mean by that. You can leave this place and sometime this week you could apply for a job and you could receive a response back from whoever is hiring you know, at that job and they could say, excuse me, sir, you are not qualified for this position. You are unqualified. And you say, well, well how? You know, I thought I was awesome. And they say, you know, well, you don't have the educational requirements or you don't have this work experience. You're unqualified for this position. And I just want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that's not what we were. Okay. Because what can you do if you get that news? You can do something about that. You can go back to school and get some more education. You can work in that certain place in your job. And you can get some more work experience to be at a future date, to be qualified for that job. That's not us. We weren't un unqualified. We were disqualified. Do you understand the difference? That, that because of who we were and what we had done, we were unfit for eternity with Jesus Christ. We were disqualified because of our sin. In fact, the opposite of that is also true. The only place that we were qualified for by nature is we deserve the wages of sin. That is death. We deserve the wrath of God for our rebellion against God. This is who we were by nature. And so what that is, that, that's nothing more than the Christian doctrine, foundational doctrine called human depravity. Human depravity. And this is true for every person on the planet. And at the very core, what that means, human depravity, it's, it's just an affirmation that we believe, that the Bible teaches, and we believe it by experience, that we do not come into this world as good people. We don't even come into this world as morally neutral people. The moment we are conceived, we are sinners. We believe that we are born into this world as sinners with a sinful nature that from birth rebels against God. We are disqualified for this inheritance. This is who we were. And because God qualified somebody like that, that's why we give Him thanks. If He just gave you what you earned, gave you what you deserve for yourself, we don't thank God, but that contrast is what produces the thanksgiving of we are unworthy to receive this inheritance from God the Father. The depravity of man. And what we see in our passage is that's a big umbrella. And many other things fit under that umbrella of the depravity of man. But one of the ways that that's sketched out for us in this passage. And that Paul is drawing our attention to remember. Is that part of our depravity is an enslavement to the power of darkness. And you see that in verse 13, that God did something for us in regards to the power of darkness, dominion of darkness. Some of your versions might say the domain of darkness. I think dominion is a better word for us as we read this verse, because what's in view here is not mainly about territory. It's mainly about authority and power. What you're to understand about yourself when you gaze backwards is not that you lived in a different land, but that you dwelt in a different, under a different power, the power of darkness. And so here's what the Bible is teaching us from this passage and many others, that outside of salvation in Jesus, unregenerate, lost humanity is under the power of Satan. Let's take that a step further. They are the slaves. They are in bondage. They are the slaves of Satan. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so when we, when we remember back about being under Satan's power... A really helpful way to think about that is he had a real and terrifying jurisdiction in your life. He had an authority in your life. In fact, 1 John chapter 5 tells us that that jurisdiction 
It extends out to the whole world that is outside of Jesus Christ. It lies in the evil one under his power, under his authority, under his jurisdiction. And the things that I want to highlight as we bring up Satan and his work, rulers, authorities, demons, the prince of darkness, is I want to remind you, this is not a theoretical thing. This is not a kid's story, fairy tale that we remember uh, with, with vagueness. This is history. This is real. That Satan is a created being bent to, to, to the core of his being with evil. And our passage reminds us that he exerts tremendous, tremendous power in this world. Okay? Tremendous power in the life of unbelievers. It's not a fairy tale. Satan is a, is a real creative being and unbelievers are under his jurisdiction, his authority, and his power. So I want to read you a quote and we're going to press into this idea even more because I think, uh, you know, a worldview that we come out of and that we bump against very often is what you could call Western rationalism, okay? And the moment that things like this in Scripture hit that worldview... We begin to have really silly thoughts about what the Bible clearly teaches about Satan and demons and his work in this world. And we need a rem reminder that this is real. This is vivid. And here's the thing. This is not something far off. This was true of every person in this room. Under the power of the evil one. And, and, and it's even still true if you're in this room and you are outside of Christ. You are under his authority. So I want to read you this quote. 2013, there was a, a late Supreme Court justice named Antonin Scalia, okay, conservative Supreme Court justice. In 2013, he was interviewed by Liberal New York Magazine. And in that magazine, he was mocked for his Christian faith in this interview. He was mocked for conservative uh, Christian values, conservative uh, faith in Christ. Now, I will say this on the front end. This man is a noted Roman Catholic. And in no way am I affirming that he's a believer, that I believe his doctrine at all. But I'm going to read you this quote because I think this captures the worldviews that are colliding against each other when we read things about the spiritual realm and the miraculous in God's Word. So in this interview, he was mocked about several things, but one of the things he was specifically mocked about was his belief in a personal devil. A personal devil. And I want you to listen to how he responded to that mocking. Here's the quote. He says, You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so far removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil? Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or I have believed in the the devil. So he goes on the offensive and he begins to expose that Western rationalistic worldview that the radical position is not believing what the Bible teaches about Satan. The radical position is that you would not believe that there's an evil created being that wreaks havoc in this world. That's the radical position. It's one of the ways, one of the several ways that the Bible handles what's called the problem of evil. The sovereignty of God, the sinfulness of man, and the rule of Satan in this world. It's, it's, it's one of God's apologetics to this world. That's why the world is the way it is. Because it lies in the power of the evil one. So the radical thing is to not see this. And I want to sharpen it even further. Okay, we're not talking about what's logical and what's rational. This is foundation, foundational Christian doctrine. This is Christianity 101 that we affirm not only that the devil exists and that he is who the scriptures say that he is, an evil, wicked, created being. We affirm foundational Christianity that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam disobeyed God and obeyed the serpent, when instead of ruling over the serpent, when he submitted to the serpent, in that moment, Adam placed himself under the authority of the evil one. He seceded his authority. He seceded his power. And not only him, he placed him and all of his offspring after him 
under Satan's bondage, under Satan's authority. He gave Satan jurisdiction willingly. He took the, the authority that he had in this world and he handed it to the evil one. And coming out of the Garden of Eden, all of unregenerate humanity, not only are we under the, the authority and the power of Satan, we are literally slaves in bondage to this terrible ruler called the devil. Now, our passage is a commandment for every one of us to remember that. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, that that's who you were? Not only were you rebellious, you were in prison. You were in bondage to this wicked king, Satan, the ancient serpent, the enemy of God. You were enslaved to him. And it gets even worse. It was, he was so powerful in your life that there was nothing that you could do about it. You could not break his chains and you could not break free from this bondage. You were to remember that. You were to remember who you were. And in the same breath, okay? In the same breath, we are to remember that in that state, that's who we were. In bondage to Satan, willing slaves of Satan. God sent somebody into that jurisdiction who was stronger than Satan. God did that for us. Look at Luke chapter 11. I want to read to you this verse, starting at verse 21. In that bondage, in that enslavement, God sent someone stronger than Satan to rescue us. Luke chapter 11, verse 21. Jesus is talking in this passage about Satan and himself. I want you to see this. Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That's Satan. Satan is the strong man, and his goods are unregenerate humanity. They belong to him under his jurisdiction. He's the strong man. Everything's going fine in his house. He's got his goods. And then look at the back half of that verse. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. That's Jesus. Who are you? You are in bondage in the strong man's house. And King Jesus, who is stronger than Satan... Breaks into that house, overpowers the evil one, and sets us free. This is what happened to us. And we're to give thanks to God for devising this plan, this rescue from the evil one. He is more powerful than Satan. Verse 13 calls that work when Jesus overpowered Satan. Verse 13 calls it a deliverance, a work of deliverance. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And so we're to praise the Father for that. Jesus did that, but we're to praise the Father for that because this is the Father's plan. He devised this. The Father sent Jesus to rescue us. And just, just hammer that in. We did not deserve it. We were the unworthy ones. And so do you feel the weight of that, brothers and sisters? Do you feel the weight that you have been delivered from this Wicked, evil tyrant that your finite mind can't even comprehend how evil he is. And you are under his wicked rule. His wicked rule. We're talking about a created being that is so evil, so murderous, so full of hate that he makes Hitler and ISIS look like child's play. Candyman. We're talking powder puff stuff. This is Satan, the king of the darkness. And he had you in bondage. Nothing you could do about it. And King Jesus came into that death camp where he held everybody hostage and he rescued us. He overpowered the evil one. And you didn't deserve it. It was like a liberation, but it's different than the kinds that we're used to. When we hear stories about World War II and the Jews in, the, in, in Nazi Germany and, and liberating the death camps, it wasn't like that. Our rescue from the evil one was not like a bunch of soldiers coming in and rescuing innocent people from wicked Germany. That was not us. Listen, 
He came into the death camp and He rescued His enemies. They hated, we hated the rescuer. When Jesus came into the world, we didn't, we didn't love Him. We spent an entire life rebelling against Him. He rescued those who deserved His wrath. He could have let us rot in that death camp and been entirely just, entirely just. And this is the grace of God that He broke the power of the evil one in our life. He came into that place and He snapped those chains that no human being could snap, including yourself. And He set you free. He set you free. So this is coming back to a theme in Scripture, the Exodus theme. The same thing that God did in Egypt. When God came to Egypt and He overpowered the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and He snapped the grip of Pharaoh over His people and set His people free, God did that same thing in your life. For every believer in the room, He snapped the grip and the bondage of Satan in every Christian's life from the moment of conversion. From the moment of conversion. The Bible tells us that Jesus did this. Check this out. On His cross. On His cross is where this happened. You think about that. The king is slaughtered on the cross. And from the outside looking in, it seems like tremendous weakness. They just killed the king. But listen to how the Bible describes this. Not his weakness, but this is the moment of victory. That in those moments, in what is perceived to be weakness, King Jesus is overpowering our strong enemy. Listen to what it says in John 12, verse 31. We are told that on the cross, Jesus cast out the ruler of this world. And he says this, now is the ruler of this world cast out. He did that on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that on the cross and through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has power of death, that is the devil. He delivered the victory blow as he bled out for our sins. He's delivering us on his cross. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 15 tells us that on the cross, King Jesus disarms rulers and authorities. That's a reference to demonic powers in relation to every believer. Jesus has done this for you. This is his victory for believers over Satan and demons. And because of that victorious work of Jesus, Christians, brothers and sisters, we now have a new relationship with Satan and demons. We are no longer under their jurisdiction. We are no longer the willing slaves of Satan. They don't have the authority that they once had in our life. And you see this in James chapter 4 verse 7. I got some good news for all of us who are in Christ in this room. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, resist the devil. Do you understand that you couldn't do that? That's new gospel news for you. That the one who held you in bondage, trying to drag you into eternal fire, now you can resist him. You can stand firm in your faith and resist him because of what Jesus has done. And it gets even better than that. That same verse tells us that if we do that, if we resist the devil, James chapter 4 verse 7 promises us that brothers and sisters, he will flee from us. We're not in bondage to Satan anymore. Jesus has broke us from His grip. From His grip. But it gets even better than that in our passage. Because all of that could be true and we could be rescued from that tyrannical power and that just puts us back in a neutral state. Set free in a neutral state. And that's not where the passage leaves us. Not only are we taken, is that power broken? In our life, verse 13 tells us that we are transferred into another jurisdiction. Look at verse 13. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You remember these things. It's just like it says in Acts 26, verse 18. You, brothers and sisters, you were turned from the power of Satan to the power of God. The power of Satan to the power of God. So those same 
things that we just highlighted of unregenerate humanity under the sway of the evil one, regenerate humanity is under the reign of King Jesus, under the rule of Christ. The word transferred here in the ancient world, it was used to describe peoples that were relocated after they were conquered. So they were conquered and they were just spoils of war and they were relocated to other places. Kind of like what happened to Israel when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and, and Israel was taken captive. They were relocated to another territory because they were a conquered people. And what that, what that little detail says to me is that we're to remember that in one sense we are free. We are free from Satan's slavery, from his tyranny in our life. But in another sense, we are a conquered people. We are the spoils of war. Jesus overpowered the strong man. And yes, we are free. But in another sense, we're the slaves of Christ. We belong to him. We are in the reign of King Jesus, the beloved son. He is now exerting his power and his authority in our life in a way that he was not before. And I mentioned this to you, the kingdom of God in Scripture is not God's rule over all things. This is His redemptive reign in the life of every Christian where Jesus begins to exert authority and power in you in a new way to bring about righteousness. The reign of God has broken loose in your life. You have been transferred into a new power, into a new power. And so what's in view here is the same thing. Okay, You become a kingdom citizen the moment you repent and believe the gospel. But that's not so much about territory and land. It's not like you live in this territory and now you live in this territory. And sometimes that's how we read the word kingdom. That, that locations are in view. Okay, It's not like that. What's in view is the power. You were transferred into a new jurisdiction. A new power. A new authority. And for those reasons... I think it would be better for us to read the word reign instead of the word kingdom. We have tr been transferred into the reign of King Jesus, the beloved Son of God. So this is where we're left in verse 13. The mention of the name of the Son. Now this is an important pivot in the letter of Colossians because from this point forward, Paul is going to exalt Jesus Christ until he almost passes out. Okay? He is going to hammer this and he's not going to get off of it until the letter ends. Okay? And so we've been celebrating the work of the Father, but we're about to swing into the work of the Son. And the supremacy of Christ is about to be covered in a beautiful way. You're going to hear more of that next week. We're going to be in this, this uh, Christ-centered paragraph. Uh, for the next several weeks. But for our purposes today, well, we want to zone in of what the Son did for us. The Father planned all that, sent Jesus, but here's what the Son has done for us. We're told in verse 14 that because of this past work that we're remembering, that we're, we're calling back attention to, that's happened in our life, because of that, we presently possess what the Scripture refers to in verse 14 as redemption the forgiveness of sins. You have that in Christ. In this moment. Every believer in the room. Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. So here we have these two phrases. And they point to the exact same thing from different angles. Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And so that word redemption. That, that is referring you to the state that is brought about. The state of liberty. You have been released from the kingdom of darkness. And at the root of that is your forgiveness of sin. So re redemption is a release. You have been released, but it's a very specific type of release. Okay, Redemption is a release through a ransom payment. That's what it means. That's what the word itself means. We're not talking about anything else. But a release that was brought about through a ransom payment. Okay? And then the phrase forgiveness of sins is getting to the, the very root of the problem. Why were we enslaved to the evil one in the first place? Because we seceded our authority and we rebelled against God and obeyed the serpent instead of God. So we have to be healed 
at the very root. And the way that God does that is He takes our sins, our lawlessness, and He cancels them. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is God taking all of your legal liabilities that you owe God the judge and wiping them clean. So here's what we have here. We have gospel to the Christian. Reminders to the Christian that every believer in this room, you have been set free from the evil one. You've been set free from Satan. You have liberty in Christ Jesus. And the same truth for you. Same exact breath. You have all of your rebellious deeds against God the righteous judge. You have them wiped clean. This is the gospel. You have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to close our time today by zoning in on how can that be true? Like, you, you really scratch your brain on that for a minute. And, and, and if you believe all of what I said, who we were and what happened to us, how in the world can God do that? You think about that. How can God be good and walk into the death camp and release Convicted terrorists just fling the door wide open and say, go free. How can he be good and do that? You see that? Or the same question is, how can God be righteous and holy and take the, the legal liabilities that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, and just wipe it clean for chronic lawbreakers? How can he do that? How can he do that and be good? How can he do that and be just? And our passage, the answer to that question, is found in the word in verse 14, the word redemption. Redemption. And so the way that God does that is through a payment. He didn't just release us. There was a release through a ransom payment. He did this in a very specific way that leaves all of his holy attributes intact. He's still righteous. He's still holy. He's still good. And he forgives sinners. And he sets the captives free. Because of this payment. And what we're reminded of with, with that wording, redemption, in verse 14, is that a bloody payment had to be made because of our sins. A bloody payment had to be made. Now, verse 13 tells you exactly who became that bloody payment. It was who? It was the beloved Summary. You were rescued into his reign because that king bled for you. That king died for sins. He became a bloody payment for sin. So I want you to catch the glory of this contrast. Okay? I, want, I don't want you to miss the glory of the gospel of Christ. I want you to be reminded of this. On the one hand, okay, the bloody, the bloody payment... And on the other hand, He is the beloved Son. The one whom the Father loves from all eternity is butchered for sin. For, 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 for rebels. For our iniquities. And so put those two truths together. On one hand, He is the object of the Father's love from all eternity. Every ounce of holy love that the Father has is focused in on the beloved Son. He is the object of the love of the Father. And in this holy moment, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God for our salvation, the object of the love of God becomes the object of the wrath of God. God poured out wrath, eternal wrath, on the one whom He loved from all eternity. This is the gospel. This is the substitution of Jesus Christ for sinners. There's nothing boring about it. Never anything happened like it. God the Son butchered on the cross for enemies, for rebels. This is the gospel. This is the very center of Christianity. That Jesus Christ died to save us. He saved us on His cross. And because of the identity of the one who died, the beloved son, that payment that he lays down with his blood is more than enough to secure our eternal redemption. 
And we're to never doubt it. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Single offering. If you're in this room today and you do not know Christ, you are outside of Jesus. I want you to take just, just this metaphor. Take your hands and throw them over your eyes, not literally. And I want you to have tunnel vision on Je with Jesus Christ on His cross. And I want you to think about nothing else for a moment than exactly what we just said about this holy, holy, holy moment where the, the object of the Father's love became the object of the Father's wrath. And I want to tell you, with that thought in your mind about the crucified Son of God, I want to tell you that you have no hope apart from Him. This is the only place in all of the universe where you can find salvation from sin. And I mean that, sir. I mean that, ma'am. I mean that. That you can search all of God's creation and you will never find any way else for sinful man and woman to be made right with holy God. Only the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. And we can only be saved by the death of God's Son. This is the Christian gospel at the very center. This is the good news of salvation. And I beg you, don't ignore this. Don't think about anything else. You have no hope. Keep that tunnel right there. You have no hope of looking away to anything else. You need Christ and you need Him crucified. You or Jesus will bear the wrath for your sins. One or the other. That's your only choice. This is the mercy of God. He's extended mercy to humanity through Christ. And I want to turn the corner and close to, to my brothers and sisters. Because of Christ, because of His death in our place. I just want to ask you this. Can you believe it today? Can you believe the glory of the gospel today? That it's really true. Not just on paper, that it's really true that Christ has died for your sins. Brothers and sisters, can you wrap your mind around the glory of that? Does that not explode the human brain and the human heart? Of Christ dying for us in our place. Can you believe that gospel today? That there is no guilt in all the universe that is attached to you any longer because Christ died for you. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Can you believe it? Can you believe that today? That the only thing left for you before God the judge is this righteous garment that you wear. That's the very righteousness of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, can you believe that today? That glorious good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And so here's, here's the emphasis of what I'm giving you today. I'm not encouraging you to leave this place and do anything. I'm screaming in your ear, something has been done for you. Celebrate it. Isaiah 40 verse 2 says this, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. Done. It is finished. And God deserves praise for what He's done in our life. And it glorifies Jesus Christ when we're happy in His salvation. It pleases Jesus Christ when we are happy in salvation. Micah 7 verse 18 who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not restrain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. That's what the prophet's saying. And we turn the corner and say, God did that. He trampled our sins under His feet and He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And so I want to close with this thought. Okay? The joy of sin forgiven. You walking in the joy of sin forgiven. Gospel joy in this world. It changes your life. 
It changes the way that you live in this world. And even more than that, when we walk in the joy of sin forgiven, we glorify Jesus Christ. We please Him. Can you imagine that? Of Him being pleased with receiving this praise and this thanks from His church. I'll close with this. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Gospel. God, we ask You to use this Word today in our life for Your purposes, Lord. That You would use it to bear fruit in us, God. That You would use it to, to do what You have designed it to do. Lord, we tell You as Your church, God, we desire this, Lord. We want to be affected by Your Word. God, use it in our life. God, we pray that You would transform us Lord, we pray that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation. And God, we praise you today for your grace and your mercy that you have poured out on us in Jesus. God, thank you for your saving nature. And we just tell you today, Lord, that you could have left us in that condition. But we praise your holy name, God, that you came to save us in Christ. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.